Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on com compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Lisa, for reading. Uh, my name's Eric, pastor here at Trinity. If I haven't had the chance to meet you and greet you, I would love to do so. We are in a series here, a teaching series to begin the year called Liturgy for Life. And what we are doing is we are looking at each element or part of our worship service. And for each of them, we are asking, why? Why do we need to do this? On a weekly basis, why do we need to do this on a regular basis when we gather together for worship? And the hope and my prayer is that each part of our service would take on fresh power and meaning for all of us. In addition to that, we are also looking at how our Sunday liturgy can serve as a liturgy for our daily lives. What? I'm calling our liturgy for life, our habits for life. I'm going to put a slide up here and just jump right into this. This is a concept that I think is very important. It's been helpful for, for me, and I think it's true, and it's biblical. Let's go to that next slide. Our liturgies, this applies to, I think, Sundays and our habits and our rhythms of life, are formed based on what we value, seek, and consider important. And our liturgies have the power to redirect and reshape what our hearts value, seek, and consider important. So it goes both ways. The liturgies that we're surrounded with, they show us what's important to our culture, to the world that we live in. Our own personal liturgies, they reveal what we seek, what we worship, we could say, what we treasure, what we're after. And as we pay attention to those liturgies, those habits, it has the power to redirect and refocus what we worship. So the first thing you do in the morning maybe is to grab for your phone. Anybody? We might all do different things when we grab it. We might look at work email. We might jump right onto social media. We might look at the news for the morning. We might check sports. And so maybe you can ask, why? What does this liturgy reveal about what I value, what I seek or consider important? And we can all ask ourselves, just choosing that one liturgy, how is this directing and shaping my heart and my life? Today, our topic is singing. So I thought instead of speaking this sermon, I should probably sing it. So let's have the worship team come back up. 
Okay, you're laughing. It's not true. It's a joke. But technically, singing, it doesn't really fit into the series. Singing is not a separate element or a part of our service. It happens all throughout the service, and that indicates what singing is. Singing is a way that we do every single part of our service. Almost all the elements God has given to us for worship, we can do through singing. We praise and adore Him through song. We can pray through singing. We could confess through singing. We can receive assurance through singing. We can hear the Word of God. Colossians 3.16 says we can teach and admonish one another through our singing, and we can receive God's blessing through a song. It all fits, and it can all be done through singing. So though it's not a separate element, since singing is one of the clearest things that the Bible says, when you get together, when followers of Christ gather together, the Bible's clear. There should be singing. Why? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We read Colossians 3, 12 through 17. My focus is going to be on verse 16. We're going to zero in on that. We'll talk about the, the context there, and we'll also look at a number of other passages in the Bible. First, I think it's important that we just reflect for a little bit on the question, what is singing? How would you define that? What is a song? I know this is a little bit like coming up with the definition of being in love. Define being in love. Well, that just takes all the power away from it. You know it when it happens and when you experience it. We all know what a song is when we hear a song or when we sing one. But uh, definitions can help us reflect on why we sing. What, it, what happens when we sing? So here are a few definitions. A short piece of music, a song, is a short piece of music with words meant to be sung. Or a poetic composition meant to be sung to music. This is the way that was most helpful to me as I was thinking about it this week. A song is lyrics or words plus music put together to move the heart. Words and music. Amazing Grace, very well-known song, very well-known hymn. If you just have the words alone and I say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Not many of you were very moved by that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I've heard that. Not very moving. The words alone don't impact us with power. Music alone, if, if somebody was here playing the piano, one of our great pianists was up here playing the tune to Amazing Grace, we would be moved, it would be beautiful, and it would impact us. But it's together when the words and the lyrics are matched to the music that the song goes straight to the heart. It does something inside of us. A song puts words and music together to move the heart, to move the heart in all kinds of ways, to move the heart in romance, love songs, in sadness, right? There's that whole genre of breakup songs. So you're, just, you're sad and you're weeping in those songs. There's excitement with dance songs. There's patriotism. We sing our national anthem. Songs move the heart in all kinds of ways, really expressing the variety of human experiences. Now, the word heart, in the Bible, the word heart is really the center and core of our being. It's it's not just our affections. It is our affections, but it also includes our thinking, our choosing, or our wills. It's where it all comes together. The Bible says it's like the control center of our entire lives. And the Bible teaches 
Look at Colossians 3.16. This is where singing comes from. This is where singing gets into and where it comes out of. Colossians 3.16 says, Singing with gratitude in your hearts, in the very core and center of your being. A parallel passage to this is in Ephesians chapter 5. We read that in our time of confession, where the same author, the Apostle Paul, says you should make music with your heart to the Lord. And one psalm, just one psalm for an example, Psalm 108.1, the psalmist in this song says, My heart is confident. God, I will sing. I will sing praises with the whole of my being. So it's saying a confident heart sings and it activates the entirety of our being all through the power of singing. So, because singing gets into and it comes from our core, it's powerful. It's even more powerful when it's done in a group. This week, I was interacting with our church bookkeeper, Katie Jo. You know, she does a great job. And she was trying to into our Verizon account to get our records, our records for this past year. And so she was getting stuck because there was a secret question that I had put on the Verizon account. And the question was, what was your first ever live concert that you attended? And said, I said to Katie, well, I'm going to have to come clean. I was 13 or 14 years old, mind you. And mine was a R&B hip-hop concert with uh, Belle Biv DeVoe, MC Hammer, Jodeci, and Keith Sweat. It was a good concert. And at that concert, I wasn't just there listening. I was singing. I was singing all the words. Don't look up the lyrics. Just don't. But we remember those. You probably all remember your first live concert. There's something to the music being played and singing together with people that moves us to the core. It is powerful. From this definition of singing, we can see Some of the differences between singing and speaking. Rarely will we listen to a sermon or a lecture repeatedly. Rarely do I do that, so you won't hurt my feelings if you say, I only only listen to your sermons once. Maybe if it's a meaningful message, you'll go back and you'll listen to it a few times, right? But probably not a thousand times. Has anybody ever listened to a sermon 1,000 times? Even a hundred times? But if I said, has anybody ever listened to a song 1,000 times? I'm sure all of us would say, yeah, there are a few songs like that for me. I think about that. You know, never has someone memorized word for word, repeating and reciting someone else's message or sermon. That's plagiarizing and that's bad. That doesn't happen. But I point this out to say, not that speaking and preaching doesn't get to the heart in a powerful way, but to show how singing works differently. Songs are meant to be repeated a thousand times and more. If you hear an amazing song and it resonates with you deeply, no one would ever say, that was a great song. I'm never going to listen to it again. It'll spoil it. No, we say, put it on repeat. I want to hear that one again. And the words and the lyrics and the power of the song, the feeling it evokes stays fresh. And in different moments, it hits us with that power, even new impact. This week, it was fascinating to me to, uh, to learn the ancient practice or the liturgy of the Jewish people it was not simply to read the Bible, but to sing it. This was the practice, to sing it or to chant it. And some rabbi said it was sacrilegious to just read the Bible, that it needed to be sung or chanted. 
Music is powerful. Singing is powerful. Words and music put together to move the heart. Let's talk about why we do it. Why do we do it here? Why do we do it when we gather? From a very basic observational perspective, it seems as if human beings, we sing because we can't help it. Just look at any culture. Across the globe, across history, every culture has songs. Every culture gathers together and there is singing involved to celebrate and mark special occasions or to tell stories. If you Google this, modern science has come up with all kinds of health benefits to singing. And these are amplified when we sing in a group. Some of those are it bonds people together and creates unity, can release endorphins, can boost our immune system. So you come here, we get healthy and stronger immune systems when we sing. Relieves stress, helps with grief, aids the memory. It's all the benefits of singing. It seems like God made us to sing. And it seems like God made us to sing together. Somebody said, the only instrument God created is the human voice. So I want to dig deeper, though, and ask, but why should singing be a part of our liturgy when we are gathered together for worship? And what does Scripture say about that? Well, to start, if you just look at the Bible, you'll notice there are over 200 songs in the Bible. The command to sing is probably 100, I think, 100 times at least throughout the Bible. Sing, sing, sing. There's a whole book of the Bible that is a song book, the book of Psalms that are written to be prayed and to be sung. Singing is a part of our faith. And Colossians 3.16 in one sentence helps us answer the why question underneath all of these why questions. But why? In one verse, in Colossians 3.16, it says that the word of Christ may dwell among us richly. I want to piece this apart and examine this. The word of Christ. Now, this is not talking about a single word Jesus said or even necessarily the focus uh, is on his teaching. The word of Christ here means the message about Jesus Christ. It means the gospel his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. All that and all of its implications for us and the world, that is what is contained in that phrase, the word of Christ. So God, using our definition, wants us to take the word of Christ, the message of the gospel, join it to music so that our hearts are moved by its truth and its beauty and its power. He wants us to do that when we gather together. This is a plural command, a command to a worshiping community, the church plural. The word of Christ might dwell richly among you. The word dwell here comes from the Greek word home, oikos. So it means when something gets inside of us, when it resides in us, when it becomes a part of us and it stays there. And it says not just stay there, but dwell richly. The word richly means deeply and abundantly, in a way that it fills us up, that the truth and the beauty of the message of the gospel might fill us up and be at the very core and center of our hearts. Colossians 3.16 says, that's why we sing together. 
You know, I've met a number of people who have said over the years to me that singing is just not my thing. You know, uh, in church, this doesn't do it for me. I'm more of a thinker and a doer, not really a singer. And now we all do have our natural bents. Some of us are really good singers. Some of us are not. Some of us, for some reason, resonate with music, and others of us may say, that's not my thing. But that kind of approach, according to Colossians 3.16 and what we're looking at, will leave us imbalanced and parts of us unfilled or unempty when it comes to being filled with the truth of the gospel. So we all need to stretch, those of us who love singing, for the sake of singing, Colossians says there's more to it than that. For those of us who say, well, there's other things that I do to worship, we need to stretch because we're missing out on something. I want to place this all back in the context of Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, the full passage that we just read together, which for me is one of the most beautiful descriptions of the Christian life. Look at it with me. First, he says, as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved. How can we really believe that's true of us? That we are chosen? That God says to us, I want you. I want you to be close to me. You are wanted. That we are holy, that we're set apart. Our lives are devoted to God. And we will be holy, sanctified by him. That we are dearly loved no matter what. How can we do the next verse? Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another when people rub us the wrong way. In our everyday family life, in our relationships, how can we forgive as we have been forgiven? How can we let love unite us when there are so many things that can divide us? How can we have the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts and not anxiety? How can we be thankful and not bitter and discontent and then do everything in our lives for the name and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ? Well, verse 16 says, a part of the answer is that none of this can happen if the word of Christ isn't dwelling deep inside of you, the message of who Jesus is and all that he has done for you. And singing is necessary, this says, for that to happen. We, string, we, we sing because we struggle to believe that we are chosen, holy, and loved. We sing of the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness of Jesus toward us and the love of Christ toward us above all so we can treat others as we have been treated by him. We sing of the peace of Christ so it would rule over our hearts and drive out fear and anxiety of who Jesus is and all that he gives us in grace as we sing that in faith, even when our hearts are hard and sleepy and distracted by so many things, Colossians says, the word of Christ, it will get in there and it can move the heart. It's not emotional manipulation through music. This is the word of Christ, which is truth, and music, which is beauty and power, filling us and our hearts with Jesus. That is why we sing together. Martin Luther, who was a reformer and also a good songwriter himself, he said this, 
as he was seeking to spread the message of Jesus Christ uh, throughout uh, Europe and in the movement of the Reformation, he said, I have the intention to create psalms for the people. In other words, spiritual songs, so that the Word of God will remain among the people, also by means of music. And then he said this, I love it. That's why we are looking for poets everywhere. We're not just only looking for preachers, but poets, that the word of Christ might be sung. That's why we sing. I have a little bonus uh, point uh, that's not in the bulletin, in the outline, and it is when we sing. I want to reflect on this. So that's why, when should we do this? Singing. We should sing on Sundays. This verse, this text is given to uh, the context of a community gathered together for worship. From the earliest accounts we have in the New Testament, we see Christians singing together when they get together. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it here in Colossians and Ephesians. We see it hinted at in the book of Revelation. In a very early letter written by a Roman official, Pliny the Younger, to the Roman Emperor Trajan, he was describing, these are Romans, he was kind of spying on Christians, and he said, I want to tell you what they're doing. He says in this letter, they meet on a fixed day before dawn, and they sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. We have all kinds of evidence that says when we get together on Sundays for worship, a core part of what we do should be to sing the gospel, to bring it to life in our hearts so that we might sing every day in all of life's ups and downs. Colossians 3.16 enables the life described in Colossians 3.17. In everything you do, be thankful. Everything you do, do it for the glory and the honor in the name of Jesus. We need 16 together in order to do 17. It helps us bring the word of Christ that it might dwell richly in us in all of the experiences, especially in our suffering. In those times when we feel like we don't have the words. And words alone, they just don't seem to work. The words we try to tell us in our heads, it's going to be okay. I'll get through this. It'll be over. The words that we try to speak to others in their trials. When things are hard and suffering comes, we struggle for words. Sometimes we're just speechless. And we wonder, what can I even say that'll make a difference? David, who wrote many of the Psalms, wrote some of his most powerful songs at his lowest moments. He wrote one while he was hiding alone in a cave, and he didn't know if he would live. He wrote another when people were sent to kill him and assassinate him, and he wrote a song. Psalm 59. Psalm 3, which is really the first psalm, or the first song after the two introductory psalms, 1 and 2, was written when his own son led a coup and kicked him out of his home and off of his throne. When David didn't know what words to speak, he came up with these songs. He gave them to us to pray in our suffering and in our laments. And in Acts 16... There's a story about the Apostle Paul and one of his ministry partners, Silas. They were flogged for preaching in a city. They were beaten. And they, it says they were put in the inner jail cell, somewhere in the dark, in the back 
of the jail, and their feet were put in stocks. And if we can just kind of enter into that experience, what would you do? What would, what would you say to is Paul and Silas? Silas, it's going to be okay. What did they do? It says about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God. Always been amazed by that. When death draws near to us or those we love, when memory fades, the songs that we have sung will be there to bring the word of Christ into our hearts. One worship leader said, he's a singing worship leader, said, when I prepare to lead the congregation to sing, I'm preparing them for funerals. Or I'm giving them songs for when they just don't have the words. When I started seminary in Orlando, I heard about this test that you needed to take when, before you graduated. There was all this talk. Before you graduate, you have to take this test or you won't get your seminary degree, your MDiv. And what it was was you had to verbatim write out 35 question and answers from our statement of faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I was like, wow, that 35, is that hard? That sounds like it's going to be really hard. And you have to do it at your last semester after you've taken all your final exams and all that stuff. And then it's like, you're not done yet. Write it down word for word or you don't pass. And I thought, man, that's going to be really hard. And then when it came time closer for me to, to do that in my third year, I discovered something written by a fellow student. He was a few years older than me. His name's Bruce Benedict. And we praise the Lord for Bruce Benedict because what he did is he took those questions that we needed to memorize verbatim and he put them to music. And it wasn't bad music either. It was actually really good music. And so all I was doing at the end of my third year was listening to those songs. And it was actually very easy to pass that test. And you see people there in the library taking it, and everybody's like tapping and humming and singing, and we're just remembering the words. You know, that's how it should be. The word of Christ put to music gets into the heart. There are many stories of people who have lost almost all their memories and their verbal functioning but they remember the hymns that they sang in church. You can look and find some incredibly moving stories of this. My professor, Reggie Kidd, also from seminary, in his book on singing, he's a worship leader and New Testament scholar, uh, he tells a story of when his father was in a care facility for Alzheimer's and he had a roommate named Mr. Mr. Couch. And he says um, he rarely spoke. And people told him he used to be a conversationalist and lively and always talking, but he wasn't speaking at all, really. He says one night he was there visiting his father, and in the, the bed next to him, it was dark. He could see Mr. Couch just tossing and turning and not sleeping. And then all of a sudden, he heard him say and sing these words. He thought maybe he was even sleeping. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The, dark, the darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail, 
and comfort, comforts flee. Help of the helpless, Lord, abide with me. There when he needed it the most in that darkness. Because he sang that song in church, most likely, on his own. It was there. It was there when he needed it. That's when we sing. A quick note on what we sing. There's been a lot of debates uh, on what do you sing in church? The old stuff? The new stuff? What genre do you sing? And we could talk a lot about that. But Colossians here says, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the truth is, no one really knows what the difference is between all of those. But there's a good guess out there that the psalms, it makes sense that it's talking about the book of psalms. Songs familiar to the Hebrews, the Jewish people. The psalms of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it says, sing with instruments. So we know that was a part of worship of the psalms as well. It says hymns. This was a form more familiar to Greeks, scholars say. New poetic songs written to bring theology to life and to the heart. We have a few of these hymns in the New Testament, most likely, in Philippians 2 and in Colossians 1. And then spiritual songs. What are those? Maybe, most likely, they are folksier songs, grassroots songs written by people to express their worship of Jesus, inspired by the Spirit in different contexts for people to sing. So we sing all kinds of songs. It seems that we have the freedom to sing the variety of songs as indicated there. The guideline being, let the word of Christ dwell richly. Songs that point to Jesus, to who he is, what he's done, and how that impacts our hearts and our response to that. That's the guideline. Here at Trinity, just a quick glimpse as to how all this happens. Every week I interact and, um, with our worship leader and our worship team. We take the sermon text and we try to find songs that match that text in order that it would be the word that's the guideline for our music. Yes, we sing songs from the historic church. We sing songs that maybe were written this year. We try to do a blend of those songs to give voice to what the Spirit has taught the church and God's people. And how does the Word of Christ dwell in us richly through a great variety of songs that are focused on the Word of Christ? Last point, why God sings. Sometimes when we are singing, we might not connect with the song. We might say, I wish I felt like that, but I don't today. Sometimes we just don't feel like singing, or the words are just not real to us. Sometimes we're singing just because we, we like singing, and we're just into the moment of the song. Our liturgies of singing have their full impact even when we're not singing ourselves and can't get there ourselves, when we realize that God himself is a singing God. There are two places, incredibly significant places in the Bible that describe the singing of God. The first is the singing of, of Jesus, God the Son. It's in Hebrews chapter 2. I think I have that uh, text to put up on the on the screen there in a slide. Hebrews chapter 2 
says, for the one who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Here it is, saying, this is what Jesus is saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Uh, The word there for congregation is a word that we usually translate church. And there's an image here given of Jesus that he is the one leading the songs of the church. Whenever we are gathered together as a church, as God's people, we are to imagine Jesus himself as our worship leader singing. This quote here, it's, it's, uh, we can go back um, to the previous one. It's in quotes because this is a quote from Psalm 22. It's a song that we know that Jesus knew very well. Psalm 22 is a song none of us would ever want to sing, especially the first part of this song. Psalm 22 is the song that came to Jesus' heart and that was on his lips when he suffered on the cross. There are times when we need songs like this, the songs of lament. But no one will ever sing this song like Jesus did on the cross in the greatest moment of darkness when the goodness and the favor of God his Father was lost to him. When he was in the dark, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that forsakenness, When the Father was hidden from his heart, when Jesus received what our sins deserve, what our sins tell God, that we don't want you, we don't need you, I'm okay alone. Jesus went into the full experience of aloneness, separated, empty of the love of the Father. And that was the song he shouted, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think that was just a random choice in the moment. It just kind of came to mind as Jesus was suffering. He said, I need something, I think. He knew that his experience on the cross would be what was described in Psalm 22 to the nth degree. Jesus knew he would need this song. He knew what it said, that he would experience this song like no other person would ever experience it all alone, forsaken, cursed, bearing the sins of the world. So if he knew this was the song that he was going to sing, why? Why would he do it? Why would he go to the cross? Jesus himself said, I don't have to do this. I could call down angels and end this right now. But he chose to enter into the full experience of Psalm 22 to this song And the answer is in verse 25 of that same song. That is, it descends deep, deep into the darkest place, Psalm 22, where he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by people. Where he says, there's no one to help me. I am surrounded by bulls. The strong ones encircle me. They open their mouths against me like lions mauling, roaring. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. Who would want to sing that song? This was the song that Jesus sang from the cross. 
as it descends deep into that darkness, there's a turning point in verse 25, and that's what's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. Why did he do it? He did it so he could lead us in singing. So that he could lead us in singing praise to the God who saves us. As he looked ahead on the other side of that darkness to his resurrection, he knew what would be different before singing Psalm 22 and after would be that we would join with him in his song. The gospel is not only that Jesus died that we would sing with him. He died for us so we would know the Father always sings over us. Have you ever been serenaded by someone? It can be very uncomfortable if you have been. We all get a little taste of that, like if it's happy birthday time for us on our birthdays and there's a big group around us and it's like, bring out the, you know, the waiters and the waitresses and we're all going to sing happy birthday. And what do you do when people are saying happy birthday? You're just kind of like, you know, it's just awkward. People are all looking at you and you're just like, I can't wait to blow out the candle. But the attention is on you. The spotlight is on you. People are singing over you saying, this is about you. We are glad you were born. Happy birthday. We love you. We already read it earlier in the service, but in Zephaniah chapter 3, we are told, for all those who believe in Jesus, this is the reality of our lives. God delights over us with singing. Let's put it up again on the screen. We sing for joy loudly. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart. Why? The Lord has removed your punishment. He's turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. Here is what he says to you. Do not fear. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight over you with singing. You see, in Zephaniah 3, it says, our singing for joy is a response to the singing of God over us. The God who removes our punishment, the God who takes away and turns away our enemy through Jesus Christ sings a song over us of love and delight and joy. So all our singing is a response to the song of God over us. Final thought, in our CBR reading, we were reading Luke chapter 15, one of the most incredible and powerful chapters in all of the Bible. It has the parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and the lost son, or the lost sons, more accurately. And the story is there's two sons of a father. One is extravagant. He takes the father's inheritance and says, just let, him, let me have it early. He goes and he wastes all that inheritance and comes groveling back to the father and says, if I can only be a servant. And the father says, no, you are my son. You were lost and you are now found. And they begin to celebrate. But there's another son, right? That son was there all along. And he sees all this happening. Luke 15, 25 says, The older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, singing. And then he became angry, and he didn't want to go in. The person who hears the music but won't sing, for whom 
The singing does nothing is the person who believes God's love is earned. The person who believes God only rejoices and sings over us when we obey and meet his standard. When God only sings over us when we are good enough to earn it. That person will only sing when they think they've been good enough. And that person won't sing when grace is extended to others whom they think don't deserve it. But the person who knows that God delights over us in singing, not because we've earned it, but because Jesus, our Savior, has taken away our punishment. He's turned back all our enemies. He sings with us, and he receives us that we might enter into the delight of God, the one who sings over us. Let's pray that that would fill our hearts richly. Would you pray with me? Father, we struggle to believe that we could somehow earn or deserve your delightful singing over our lives. What could we do that would earn that? What could we possibly do? That the God of the universe would sing over us with joy and love. And yet we know what you have just shown us that you do. Not because we are worthy of it. Not whether we've had a great week or a great day or think we have measured up to your standard. But because you delight in us, in your son Jesus. We give you thanks that we can stand in that delight, sing in that delight, and know that it is ours as a gift. Help us receive that gift and fill us. Fill us with the knowledge that you delight over us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.